Good morning, church. Okay, first I need to um, apologize for my lie last week. I told you we we're going to go to John 4 today. That's not true. So my apologies to that. If you came, you're like, that's the only reason I came, John 4. I'm out of here. Well, just stick around. We'll get to that. We'll get to John 4, I promise you, in two weeks, okay? Um, I was so excited about John 3.16 and those verses, and I was so excited about the upcoming weeks that I jumped the gun and I forgot there's, there's another 12, 14 verses in John I need to cover. So open up your Bibles, would you please, and turn to John chapter 3. We'll start in verse 22. John chapter 3, verse 22. This section uh, not only concludes the chapter, but it shares some valuable teaching that we all need to hear and some direction in life that we all need to take. John chapter 3, starting verse 22. Let's read. Then Jesus and his disciples left Jerusalem and went into the Judean countryside. Jesus spent some time with them there, baptizing people. And at this time, John the Baptist was baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water there and people kept coming to him for baptism. This was before John was thrown into prison. Now, we'll stop there and just again, historically, it's, it's good to know that when we're going through a passage in the Bible or we're talking about spiritual things, what I love about the Bible is that it always provides a context and a position to help us understand this took place. What I mean by that is we read here that it's a location, name, and dates are given. Here we know the exact location to help us identify and legitimize what took place. John continues to emphasize what Jesus was doing in that Judean area. And what was he exactly doing? I love this. Jesus was baptizing people. So when we baptize, we baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We, we talk about how you have confessed your sins, and so you die to your sins, and you are brought into new life with Christ when you're baptized. And it would be an amazing thing to be baptized by Jesus. I baptize you in my name. Boom. Wouldn't that been incredible? So this is going on, and we're reading here that that's what he's doing and that we do our baptism, we have one in the summer, usually Labor Day weekend out in the pond at Jagir's. But we also have an indoor baptism that we can do one in here. If you're like, hey, I want to get baptized next week, we're on. We have one scheduled for Palm Sunday. If you're sitting here going, I've never been baptized and I want to get baptized. Well, it's time for you to get baptized. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you've confessed your sins to the Holy God, you've proclaimed that, now let's show it. That's part of the baptism, uh, what happens here. So meanwhile, John the Baptist, he is also baptizing people. So we start off here, Jesus is baptizing, John the Baptist is baptizing, and people continue to come to John the Baptist to listen, to repent of their sins, and be baptized. Look at verse 25, what happens next, though. A debate breaks out between John's disciples and a certain Jew over ceremonial cleansing. We don't know what that debate is, but it goes on in verse 26. So John's disciples came to him and said, hey, Rabbi, the man you met on the other side of the Jordan River, referring to Jesus, the one you identified as the Messiah, is also baptizing people, and everybody's going to him instead of coming to us. Again, we don't know what the debate was, but the discussion leads into this, where John learned that Jesus is baptizing people over a little bit further down the river here, and John the Baptist, his disciples, are getting a little upset about this. Keep in mind, John the Baptist had achieved a great deal of popularity. 
We read in the book of Matthew chapter 3, verse 5, it says, People from Jerusalem and from all of Judea and all over the Jordan Valley went out to see and hear John. He had these large crowds that were gathering. Everybody wants to hear John the Baptist, and we want to get baptized by John the Baptist, and the crowds are getting big. Religious leaders, tax collectors, soldiers, rich, poor, everyone's coming. And someone asked him if he was, matter of fact, they asked him, are you the reincarnated Elijah? Are you a great prophet? I mean, his popularity was just on the rise. Everybody's coming to him. However, large crowds are now following Jesus. And even a few who followed John the Baptist, they're like, dude, let's, let's go follow Jesus. So they leave John the Baptist to go follow Jesus. All of a sudden, Jesus has become the popular one, and John the Baptist, not so much. And his disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, get a little concerned. And they're like, we don't want you taking second place to anybody. As if John the Baptist had monopolized baptism as his thing, right? It's almost they, they, they seemed worried about it, but it didn't bother John the Baptist one bit. He would not allow envy or the fickle crowds and their easily swayed attitudes make him forget his mission. His mission was to announce that the Messiah had come and he had to step back and let the attention get focused on the Messiah. That was the role of John the Baptist. Let me ask you this. What do you do when your popularity fades? For some of you in here, maybe you have a role, a position, a title, a job, and there are all the attentions on you, but when that fades, how do you handle that? What do you do when those who used to pay attention to you no longer come around, they're not paying attention to you anymore? You just don't seem to be the popular one or the one people want to hang out with. It was as if John's disciples were trying to come to John the Baptist and say, you know what, we're going to introduce something into your life, and it's called uh, emotional fear. You should be emotionally injured and upset that people aren't coming to you. John the Baptist is like, "Mm, I'm not. I'm good. His disciples weren't. They were struggling. They're like, you should do something about this. You know, you should feel sorry for yourself, John the Baptist. You should feel rejected because nobody wants to see you anymore. John the Baptist replies, look at verse 27. John replied, no one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. You yourselves know how plainly I told you, I am not the Messiah. I'm only here to prepare the way for him. It is the bridegroom who marries the bride, and the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. And the first thing that John does is to remind his worried disciples that everything that he has, including those who responded to his ministry, were given to him by God. If they are God's gift... And he has received that gift and says, thank you. If God then deems I'm going to take that gift away, that is God's choice. He understood the sovereign role of God. Sometimes we get so worried about the receiver that we forget who the giver was. That is God. God says, I'm giving you this gift and I might need to pull some of that back and maybe I'll give you a different gift. 
But John the Baptist, his disciples are like, your, your people are just moving away. And John's like, that's okay. They were a gift from God. No one can receive. He says this. No one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. Think about this. We live in a very celebrity status today in our culture. We love to praise others. We really do. You hear a song and you what? You adore that singer. You hear a great message and you, you lift up and you praise that pastor or that speaker. You, maybe you read a book and it was motivating and you esteem that author, right? We love to put people on pedestals and celebrate them. And that seems like a natural thing to do. Instead, John says, reminds us, if you hear something that encourages you or inspires you or motivates you, praise God, period. Don't praise the singer, don't praise the speaker, don't praise the pastor, don't praise the author, but praise God who spoke through that individual. Give praise to God, for it is God who gives you insight into his word. The only reason when you heard a song and you connected to that song is because God's spirit was speaking through that singer, and that, those words was inspired by God. God's spirit opened up your ears and your heart to hear what you needed to hear at that moment. Time and time again, I'll be working with a team, and I'll get done, and a coach or a player will come over and say, that was exactly what we needed to hear. Thank you, thank you. It's like, man, praise God. Because I could say that same thing to 20 people, but here's the thing. God spoke to you, and you connected. He opened up your ears because you needed to hear that. That wasn't me. That was God. And a lot of times I'll say that to the coach and say, it was. And they agree. Matthew Henry said this. If God is pleased to give others more ability and success than to us, shall we be displeased at it? John was ready to own that it was the free gift of heaven that made him a preacher, a prophet, a Baptist. It was God who gave him the role he had toward the people. And if now his role were to decline, God's will be done. So John understands this. What I have is a gift from God. And I'm going to praise God for that gift. Now here's the second thing he says, and now you need to know your role. So what I have is God's gift. Now what I'm going to do... It's what I'm supposed to do. John reminded his disciples that he knew who he was and he also knew who Jesus was. Look what he said. He goes, I am not the who? The Messiah. I'm only here to prepare the way for him. See, John found this sweet spot. He didn't think too highly of himself. He wasn't going around saying, I'm the Messiah. I'm the Messiah. Worship me. Listen to me. And I'm going to baptize you. I'm the man, right? And he wasn't on the other end of the spectrum, which was, I'm a nobody. And, I, and God has no plans for me. He found a sweet spot right in the middle and said, you know what? God has given me a gift to use. I'm going to use it for his glory. Please look at him and give him the thanks. And then my role matters. But it's because God gave me this role. Very simply put, right? He's the one, he said this, I'm not the Messiah. I'm the one preparing the way for the Messiah. I am not the one who is going to be worshipped. I'm going to point you to the one that needs to be worshipped. Romans 12, 3, I'll put it on the screen for you. Romans 12, 3, verses, I'm sorry, 12, verses 3 to 5 says this. Don't think you're better than you really are. Oh, that's a slap in the face, isn't it? Be, by the way, don't be put, putting that one out to your friends. Like, hey, I found a verse that made me think of you. Okay? <laughs> don't do that. Okay? Hey, I found something. I thought you might be interested. We know what that means, so don't do that, okay? Don't think you're better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves. 
measuring yourselves by the faith that God has given us. Look at verse 4. Just as our bodies have many parts and each has a special function, so it is with the body of Christ. We are many parts of one body and we all do belong to each other. So I love what Paul says here. He goes, listen, we all have value, okay? Don't, don't be thinking you're like, you're everything, okay? You are part of the body. You have a role. I don't know if you've ever done this before. So like you're in the kitchen and you're making something and maybe you have an egg in your hand and it goes to drop out of your hand. Has anybody ever stuck their foot out there to try to catch it or break the fall of the egg? I've done that, okay? And all, you get, all you get is what? Egg on the foot. I don't know if you know this, but your feet do not have the capability to rise up and like, oh yeah, caught it, right? Feet don't do that, right? And here's the thing. If you're a gymnast in here or you're super talented and you can walk on your hands, which basically means I'm going to go upside down and I can walk around using my hands, right? Okay. You are super talented. But here's the thing. Your hands are not feet. They weren't meant to walk. You can't do that your whole life. See, your body parts have different roles and gifts. And if I choose to think that my feet needs to have the role of my hands, I'm going to have struggles. And vice versa. A lot of us don't understand that we have a part in the body of Christ, but sometimes we live out our role thinking, I want to be like somebody else. If God made you to be the hand, stop trying to be the feet. If God made you the eye, stop trying to be the ear. God's given us a role. He's given us a, a gift to use. Uh, some of you are watching basketball right now. A lot of March Madness is gearing up. And you maybe have watched Duke play basketball. And one of their players, Zion Williams, who he is definitely talented and skilled. And for those of you watching, you would fully agree. You cannot argue with that, okay? But I watched him uh, the other day, and he made a couple incredible passes, okay? So here's what I love about this. He knows he's good, and for some reason, he had to put it out there. So he makes a great pass, a one-handed pass with the basketball in between a couple of defenders to a guy who scores. What does he do? He looks at his arm. He's like, whoa, that arm just made that pass. He did that, okay? Then he did it a second time. He was out of bounds, and he threw the ball all the way down the court to a guy who got it and scored. And he walked into bounds like, oh, that arm is still an arm, a powerful arm. Okay, I get what he's doing, but it's pretty boastful to sit there and say it's all about the arm because here's the thing, because we do that sometimes. We lift people up and say it's all about them. It's not. See, the arm is connected to what? The shoulder, right? And the shoulder connected to your upper body and your core. Oh, and by the way, the muscles that operate are all connected. And here's the other thing too. My brain told my arm what to do. Okay. Oh, my eyes saw who I was going to throw it to. And my heart, the fact that it's beating, allowed me to even be on the court. So I get what he was doing, but I sit there and think, dude, we do that too often. We elevate people up. No, we're the body, each with a special function, each with a special part. And we have to be careful in how we view ourselves that we don't elevate ourselves up and like, it's all about me. It's all about the arm, right? No, no, it's about the body of Christ. Working together. The body has many parts, each with a purpose. It's not all about you. You have a role, but your role is in the part of the body. So, so, so to help his disciples understand this, they're like, okay, well, give us another picture. So he does. He goes, the bride and the bridegroom. And then the best man. To help his disciples figure this out, he explained it to them. It's sort of like this. He goes, he's like, I, it's like this. I'm the best man. 
I'm the best man in this picture. And here's the thing. If you're the best man, it's not your wedding. Okay? I've never seen in a wedding where the best man's up front and goes, Hey, uh, I don't like how you guys just did that. We're going we're gonna to change this round. And by the way, how about I just stand in between you two and face everybody? Because I'm the best man. It's not your wedding, best man. Get back over there, right? It's about who? The bride and the groom, right? What's the, be- what's the best man do? See, in, the, in Jewish wedding customs of the day, who, he was the friend of the bridegroom. He was the best man, so he arranged a lot of the details for the wedding. He made sure the wedding was in place, and then he would take the groom, I'm sorry, the bride, and bring the bride to the groom is what the best man did. That was his role. The fact that the bridegroom represents Jesus in this picture, too, also shows us another way the Bible talks about how Jesus is God because in the Old Testament, picture after picture, scripture after scripture, we see that Yahweh, God, is a bridegroom and Israel was the bride. And now we see John the Baptist bringing this up again, connecting it to the New Testament now, saying Jesus is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. And John the Baptist says, I'm the best man. My role is to take you to Jesus to have a relationship with him. James Boyce shares a story. He discovered this in the archives of the Persian kings. It's a story about the wife of one of Cyrus's generals. And it basically goes, goes like this. Um, the wife of this general was charged with treason, and she was condemned to die. So the king Cyrus brings forth the trial. She's condemned to die. The general the wife of the woman that's been condemned to die, finds out, he didn't know what was going on, finds out that his wife is about ready to be put to death. So he goes running into the courtroom where King Cyrus is and pleads for her life. And basically throws himself at the feet of the king and says, Oh Lord, king, take my life instead of hers. Let me die in her place. Well, Cyrus, who by all historical counts was a pretty, pretty civilized man, a very sensitive, a fairly sensitive and humane. He was touched by this and he said, he said this, love like that must not be spoiled by death. So he gave the husband and wife back to each other. He went ahead and removed her off a death row and said he let her walk. So the husband and wife happily walked away out of his throne room and the husband looked at his wife, the general looked at his wife, he said, did you notice how kindly the king looked upon us to give you that pardon. And the wife looked at the general and said, I had no eyes for the king. I saw only the one who was willing to die in my place. She was so moved by his, I will die for you. She would not take her eyes off of her husband. When I read that story, and we think about this, it's the same way. We are the bride of Christ. He is the groom, and our eyes are to be fixated on him. John is just the best man who introduces us and brings us in, right? I often witness at wedding receptions, a lot of times, um, the best man at the reception, he gets the, you know, because they give, they give the speeches at the reception. I've seen this often, but the best man gets up like, well, and they, you know, they don't have a lot of things to say, but they will always say this, well, I just want to let you know, um, it's thanks to me, that I introduced you to, right? Remember, remember I, I met, you know, I introduced you to. The best man's like always taking the credit, like, yeah, I'm the one that brought them together, right? And uh, here's the thing, though. We know sometimes it, that's not maybe the true story. Maybe they found out some other way. But here's the thing. When he says that, 
Is he smiling or is he frowning? He's always smiling, isn't he? He's like, I'm the one that brought you two together. There's a big smile on the face, right? You never see like, yeah, I brought them together. Don't know what I was thinking, right? No, see, there was joy in that best man. He's like, you know what? I had the awesome privilege of introducing you two to each other. See, this is why John the Baptist says, he goes, I'm like the, the one, the friend of the bridegroom, and it brings me joy. Because he's seen this. He's like, you know what? It's not about me. It's about Jesus. And I'm excited to be the one to introduce you to him. I'm connecting the bride with the groom. Well, it's a little hard today because you think about this. John the Baptist was losing his congregation. All these people are leaving to go with Jesus. And here's the thing. He was happy about it. John is happy about it. A lot of us say we'd be like, people are leaving our church to go to the other church. That church is a loser church. You know, we, what do we do? We critique the other church. Or we get upset with some, and we start making excuses. And it's like, you know what? They're not hanging around here. It's, that's probably on me, right? Or maybe they're finding truth where they're not finding truth in this place. I don't know why. But for John, he was like, so be it. That's hard today, you know? Because temptation is what? Draw the popularity towards ourselves. Fill the seats. We feel good about ourselves. We want more people to follow us than somebody else. And it can't be that way. Our concern is, it's not about following me. It's not about following the band. It's about following who? Jesus Christ. That should be our concern. I read this book. It's called The Assist. It's a fantastic book. Um, It helps uh, athletes understand who they are in Christ. I started to read this book, and as I'm reading it, I'm like, oh, that's good. And I started taking notes, and I'm like, I'm going to write, I need to share that. So here's what happens you see people on on TV, uh, especially sports, they score a touchdown, they make a bucket or something, they hit a home run, they point to this guy, like, hey, giving God the glory, right? And then afterwards, they interview him, like, yeah, I want to thank God. And then the next five minutes, all they do is they talk about themselves, right? Who is God? How do you give him glory? Who are you as an, as an athlete, as a competitor? How do, how do you as a Christian compete? How do you handle winning? How do you handle losing? How do you practice? Are you the best practice player out there? You should be. You're representing Christ. How do you deal with your teammates? A great book. I'm sitting there thinking every Christian who is a competitor should read this to know how to live out your faith in the realm of competition. So as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, you know what? I'm going to take this. I'm going to take it to our FCA leadership camp this summer. And I'm just going to use these notes and share them, right? Because I can. And I look at the back of the book, and here's the other thing. The author's name is Brian Smith. He works for Athletes in Action, not FCA. Uh Uh-huh. Competitor ministry out there, right? There's no way I'm going to give credit to Brian for these things. But then then God's like, Rex. Yes. He is not the enemy. Athletes in Action, Youth for Christ, Young Light, Fellowship Christian Athletes, they're all ministries for what? To bring people to Christ. He's not the enemy. How many times have we looked at other churches and we compete with other churches or other missions or other... They are not the enemy. It's like, all right, God, got it. So I went on his website, found his information, called him up and befriended Brian and said, Brian, read your book, man, inspiring, um, very encouraged by it. Would you come to our FCA camp and share this at our leadership camp. It's like all in. Here we go. Let's do it. So we're going to be working together this summer. And I'm excited about that. Because that's the way the body of Christ works. It's a very humbling experience to sit there and say, I don't have the answers. You do. So you bring it. 
Because God gave him what he needed to share. And I'm excited for him to do that. But John shows us, and F. Bruce says this, John shows us there is no sense of envy or rivalry. It's not easy to see another's influence growing at the expense of one's own. It is even less easy to rejoice at that sight. But John found joy completed by the news which he brought, which his disciples brought. John not only helps us understand our role, but then he he shifts the focus here. John the Baptist says it best, and it would be wise for every Christian, especially in those leadership, to proclaim what he's about ready to say. So look at verse 30. He says this, He must become greater and greater. I must become less and less. See, John, John had this role, and Jesus had his role. And Jesus is uniquely, he is the Messiah. He is the Son of God, and he needs to be continually exalted. He must be greater. And John's saying, he must become greater and greater, and I will become less. And I'm content with that. Will there be times when we as Christians get the spotlight? Yes. Will there be times as Christians when we become popular? Yes. Absolutely. Mankind tends to follow those who sound good, look good, and and say good things, right? We chase after people. We want to get their picture with them. We want to get their autographs. I get it. That's sort of the way we are because we are inspired by their words. We're inspired by their actions. We're motivated. And it's like, man, that was so good, right? It happens. But John the Baptist shows us that we may be very popular or we may be successful, but we still need to be humble. He must become greater, not me. He must become greater and greater, not us. John the Baptist had fame in crowds that modern celebrities and pastors and speakers would have loved to have had. But yet he was an awesome example of genuine humility. Notice that John the Baptist didn't stop baptizing people either. Oh, they're all going to Jesus. Guess I should go do something else. Ah, oh, you know what? Maybe, maybe I need better marketing in this whole baptism thing couple billboards. I'll, you know, I'll just paint something on the side of a camel and slap it and let it go through town. John the Baptist. See him now. 8 a.m., right? Maybe he would do a flyers and put out there a two for one. Two people get baptized for the price of one. Come on out, right? Get your deal tonight. He could have done all these things, but what did John the Baptist do? He goes, I'm just going to keep baptizing. That's the role that God gave me. I'm not here to become big and popular. I'm here to be obedient. And that's what he does. Luke 3.15 says, Everyone is expecting the Messiah to come, and they were eager to know whether John might be the Messiah. The people were amazed, like, you know, by John the Baptist. And he said this, I baptize you with water, but someone is coming who is what? Greater than I am. Do we boast? Do we promote ourselves? We learn here from John that we dare not. That we dare not. Now, before you think I'm condemning success, I'm not. We just have to be sure and confident that the role that God has given us that we need to be grateful for the talents he has given us, and that we use those talents for his glory, and we need to be humble and saying, but he must become greater, not me. As a Christian, we have to recognize we, we are not the superior ones. Jesus is superior. There's somebody greater. Look at verse 31. He has come from above and is far greater than anyone else. We are of the earth, and we speak of earthly things, but he has come from heaven and is greater than anyone else. He testifies about what he has seen and heard, but few, but how few believe what he tells them. Anyone who accepts his testimony can affirm that God is true. So basically, after pointing to his own role and what he means, he now puts the, the focus back on Jesus. He identifies Jesus as the one who came from heaven. Jesus is the unique, the only one from heaven. He is the perfect testimony. 
And why is that? It wasn't about being a good man or a spiritual man or a great teacher. He's the son of God. Jesus came from heaven. So who do you think would be a good, who could give a good testimony about heaven? Jesus. Jesus is God. Who do you think could give a good testimony about God? Jesus. That's what John the Baptist is saying. Here's one greater than I am. He's a greatly in, in testifying two things above. Why is that? Because he came from above. I like what William Barclay says. He goes this. If we want information about a family, we'll get it firsthand only from a member of that family. If we want information about a town, well, we'll get it firsthand only from someone who comes from that town. So then if we want information about God, we'll get it from, from the Son of God. And if we want information about heaven and heaven's life, we'll get it only from him who comes from heaven. Being unique, being greater than all, being the Son of God, John prophesizes this, though, few will believe. Can you, can you believe this? He must become greater. He's from heaven. He is the best testimony as to what heaven and God is all about. And it's like, he's the Son of God. He's a unique one. He's the Messiah. And then John the Baptist says this, but yet few are going to believe. I want to tell you the most important truth. You're like, oh, okay. And yet few will believe it. It's what John the Baptist is saying. Mankind is going to reject all this. Look at verse 34. For he is sent by God. He speaks God's word. For God gives him the spirit without limits. The father loves his son and has put everything into his hands. And anyone who believes in God's son has eternal life. And anyone who doesn't obey the son will never experience eternal life, but remains under God's angry judgment. See, there were prophets that came along and they had the Spirit of God, but they did not have the full measure of the Spirit of God. There were great men in the Bible who were inspired by God and they wrote God's words. But Jesus comes along and Jesus is what? Jesus is God. Jesus is Spirit, so he is a fool of the Spirit. And yet, people will reject him. Church, listen very carefully. To believe that Jesus is God's Son, is, as John the Baptist said, is to receive eternal life. If you are in here this morning, here, you need to understand this. When you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, you are saved. That moment that you pray that prayer, you now have eternal life. Eternal life isn't when you die. Eternal life starts the moment you confess. It's like this. Every, uh, a lot of people have smartphones. I'm going to say, I about said everybody, not everybody. A lot of people have smartphones, right? So you get your smartphone and you're like, you know, with my smartphone, I can do what? I can now talk. Right? I can communicate. It's like when I receive my phone, I now have the ability to communicate with others. When I have eternal life, when I confess with my mouth and believe my heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, I can now communicate with the Father above. Oh, but there's more. I not only have a great plan, like I have eternal life, but I also have, oh, I can calculate on here. I can find directions on here to places. I can compare prices with things I want to shop for. On my, There's so much I can do with my phone right now. There's so much I can do with my life spiritually right now. Eternal life begins now. And that's just like I'm discovering apps on my phone. I'm discovering as the Holy Spirit works in me, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, all these fruits of the Spirit that come upon me. And as I grow in Him, I'm learning more, just like I learned I can do more with this. Eternal life begins now, and a lot of Christians are like, well, I prayed that prayer, so when I die, I'll go to heaven. You prayed that prayer, your eternal life begins right now. 
Your relationship with Jesus Christ begins right now. But John says this, to not believe that, to not place your faith in Jesus, is to reject Jesus. It's really simple. Have you prayed that prayer before? No. Then you've rejected Jesus. Well, I don't want to say that because that sounds, that sounds, you know, like bad. I don't want to judge it. No, it's just really simple. John says it right here. Anyone who believes in God's Son, that's Jesus, has eternal life. Anyone who doesn't obey the Son will never experience eternal life, but remains under God's angry judgment. Jesus and eternal life go together. If you reject Jesus, you reject eternal life. You can't tell him, hey, I'll take the gift, but I'm not going to take you. No, they go hand in hand. You take Jesus, you get the gift. When we reject Jesus, though, the gift of God... We bring God's wrath upon us. This past Thursday, I don't know if you remember this, but it was raining pretty hard around noon. And um, we had the food pantry going on, and, and people were here eating, and we're handing out food. And we were wrapping up around 1 o'clock, and boy, it was really raining hard at 1 o'clock. And uh, I thought about this. As if people wanted to get out to their cars, like, man, I wish there was a way to keep them dry. I wish there was a way we could save them from getting wet. I thought, oh, Umbrella. Ran around, got the umbrella. So it's like, I'm going to take the umbrella. I'm going to give you the umbrella. We're going, to, we're going to save you from getting wet. But here's the thing. You know, even when it's a hard downpour, and you, you're still going to get a little rain on you somewhere, right? So we helped them get out there. But then it hit me. It's like, wait, we got a canopy right over here. They can drive right underneath the canopy. And it'll block all of the rain. And they can load up their food and stay dry. But here's the thing. I was offering them the opportunity with an umbrella to stay dry, but as offering the opportunity with a canopy to cover all. In the same way, I'm going to offer you Jesus. And you can take him and he will save you from getting wet. Or you can reject him and you'll get all wet. And the same way with the canopy. But then we can pull up underneath the canopy, which is God's all-surpassing love. And keep you from judgment. And save you. But it's your choice. Just like I could offer you an umbrella or a canopy, I'm going to offer you Jesus Christ and eternal life. It's nothing I get to give. That's all from God. I just get to tell you about it. That's the fun part of being a pastor. I get to share with you the good news. The good news, church, is this. There's eternal life for you. It begins now. Do you want it or not? That's your choice. And I love that John put that out there. He says, it's up to you. You want it? Then accept it. But to reject it is eternal judgment. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. And as they're coming forward, I just want to ask you four questions, okay? Here's, here's my first question to you. Let's, let's, church, let's do a pride check. Do you recognize that all we have is from God, that it's not about you? It's just a simple pride check. Do we boast in the things we have or do we give God the credit for what he has given us? Your talents, your skills, your gifts, whatever it is that God's given you, he gave those to you. Do you recognize that? Here's the second question. Do you know your role? Do you know your purpose for God's put you here? He's given each of us a role. Part of that role is to understand this. He must become greater and greater. Do you recognize that? Here's my third question. Do you truly recognize Jesus as Lord over all? Is he truly Lord over all? Listen, we, we know so much more about Jesus than John the Baptist did. 
God's Spirit told John the Baptist who Jesus was. But today we have so many books, and we got the whole Bible, and we're able to study, and we could probably learn more about Jesus and what John the Baptist knew, possibly, right? But knowing more than John the Baptist doesn't matter if you don't do anything with what you know. Here's my last question. Have you accepted or rejected Jesus Christ? Where are you at on this? I hope and pray all of you have accepted Jesus Christ. That's your free gift. It's from God. He's from God. Like I said, I'm just a messenger. Like John the Baptist, I'm just, I'm just going to take you to the bride or to the groom. Jesus Christ. What you do with him is on you. I hope and pray that you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. And if you have, celebrate that. You become just like John the Baptist. And you start grabbing people. And you start bringing them to Jesus too. That's the role of our church. We want to love God. We want to love others. We want to be the church. That's what we do. Amen? Would you stand please? Heavenly Father, what an awesome God you are. I thank you, Lord, for this day we can worship you. That we can come here and pray. We can meet each other and maybe meet some new friends. Maybe find some hope that we're struggling with or some answers that we needed for our questions. God, the biggest thing that we need when we walked in these doors today was a reminder that there is new life, there is eternal life found only through your son, Jesus Christ. That's what we needed to hear above all things. So God, I thank you that we can come here, open up your word, listen to your spirit, and learn truth. But God, now it's on us to go live this truth, to go share this truth with others. So God, if there's somebody in this room today that needs to pray and confess their sins to you, let them pray right now. Let them confess their sins. Let them confess with their mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord. And God, if there's the rest of us in here like we've we've prayed that prayer, then God, help us now to take others to you, to bring others to you. When people are depressed and they don't know where the answer is, let us show them the answer, that those things can be found in you. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this day that we've come here to worship you and you alone. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.